0: Hello, and welcome to this brief introduction to the work of Guy Gavriel Kay, one of modern fantasy's best-selling authors. I'm Catherine Olley. I'm a junior research fellow in medieval studies here at Oxford. I'm an enthusiastic reader of fantasy literature and of Kay's work in particular. Um, Guy Gavriel Kay is a Canadian-born novelist, known to many fans of Tolkien as one of the editors, along with Christopher Tolkien of The Cimmerillion, which was published after Tolkien's death. So it's not surprising then that his first fantasy novels, a high fantasy trilogy called the Fionarva Tapestry, um, have some very Tolkienesque elements. We find elves and dwarves, wizards and dragons, and a high stakes battle between the forces of good and evil. The trilogy's antagonist, the unraveler Rakoth Malgrim, is an unambiguous incarnation of all that is terrible. There are definite shades of Morgoth and Sauron in his characterization and his dread mountain stronghold Starkath. Battling against him are five visitors from our own world, who magically travel to Fionava, the first of all worlds, and there join forces with the High Kingdom of Brenin and its allies to defeat Rakoth Malgrim once and for all. But for all that he owes to Tolkien, Kay also wanted to to go back to what he calls, quote, the roots of the fantastic. In an interview with The Guardian, he explains how, quote, I wanted to show you could go behind that, i.e. behind Tolkien, to the origins, and work in new ways with similar material. That was part of the self-conscious element of why I was doing Fianava and so in writing the trilogy kay also draws heavily and directly on the same european mythology which informed the lord of the Rings*. the Fionava tapestry is fittingly enough itself a tapestry of interwoven influences and motifs we find sacrifice on a tree reminiscent of odin in norse myth The binding and the escape of Rakoth Maugrim recalls the fate of Loki, another of the Norse gods who was bound by the Aesir only to be loosed at Ragnarok, the end of the world. Then we have a cauldron of regeneration, familiar from Celtic legend, um, and the wild hunt, a common motif in both Germanic and Celtic folklore. In a neat touch, Kay actually weaves in folklore itself in the form of an old children's rhyme, which turns out to hold the remnant of ancient knowledge. But most overt of all Kay's medieval borrowings are the figures of Arthur, Lancelot and Guinevere, all of whom appear as major characters in the series, along with more minor appearances by Tulliassin and even a version of Elaine, the Lady of Shalott. Kay weaves the central love triangle of the Arthurian legend deeply into his work. He takes a unique approach, however, in constructing his version of the legend around an often overlooked and controversial detail, um, namely King Arthur's slaughter of infants on May Day, in a failed effort to kill Mordred and thus avoid Camelot's ruin. Kay's Arthur is the child slayer, a warrior haunted by his terrible actions and forced by the gods into an endless cycle of reincarnation what he describes as a long, unwinding doom, in order to expiate his awful crime. It's a very dark, very human take on the Arthurian legend, more interested in suffering than in glory, and in the elegiac tone to which the doomed love triangle contributes, there is much, once again, to remind us of Tolkien. But if Kay's early work is a very traditional kind of high fantasy, then, in my own opinion at least, he really comes into his own and finds his own voice with his later standalone novels. His subsequent works after Fionnatha have much stronger and much more specific historical inspirations. Um, A Song for Arbonne draws heavily on the medieval French courts of love and also has overtones of the Albigensian Crusade. The Lions of al takes us to an alternate version of the Iberian Peninsula during the Christian Reconquest, taking inspiration from the legends of El Cid. The last light of the sun recalls England in the time of King Alfred, beset by Viking invaders. And the Sarantine Mosaic, a duology, takes us to Sarantium, a clear parallel of Byzantium under the rule of Justinian and Theodora. Hay's eye for historical and cultural detail is unerring. His Sarantium is a hotbed of debate regarding heresy and orthodoxy in the worship of Yad, recalling the many controversies regarding Christian doctrine which the emperor Justinian fought to resolve. Medical knowledge in the Lions of al Alrasan is partially derived from the ancient works of Galenus, a nod to the historical Greek physician Galen. That's not to say that his books are not also fantastical, that there's always some element of the magical in his stories, curses, fairies, ancient gods, and unquiet spirits. But Kay uses magic to add depth and dimension to his worlds, rather than taking it for his starting point. History with a quarter turn to the fantastic is how his work has famously been described. History remains his primary inspiration. Indeed, so well-researched Kay's books, and so closely inspired by real-world events, that he sometimes seems not to rewrite history, but to write around it, which can give his work quite a different shape to that of many fantasy novelists, and is part of the reason why he continues to write standalone novels rather than long, multi-volume cycles. Often crediting his reader with a fair degree of historical knowledge, Kay shows little interest in hitting the predictable beats of the historical period, choosing instead to focus on the smaller, more personal moments behind the scenes, which shape and motivate those larger events. So let's take as an example his novel Under Heaven, which is heavily inspired by China's Tang Dynasty and the events of the Anxi Rebellion which left millions dead and precipitated the collapse of much of the dynasty's Western Empire. Kay's attention in Under Heaven is focused on the weeks leading up to a rebellion. He's painting a portrait of an empire at the height of its powers, and yet sublimely unaware that its rise is over, and it's teetering now on the edge of a tragic decline and fall, a golden age about to tumble into darkness. And he captures that moment. He explores the vagaries of fate which lead to such devastation, the small details which made the rebellion a turning point in history, rather than a mere footnote to other more significant events. And in fact, he breaks into his narrative several times to muse explicitly on this theme, Almost the entirety of the rebellion itself, the years of upheaval that it begins, the victories, the losses, the alliances, the political manoeuvrings, all of that is condensed into an epilogue. Drawn so closely from real historical events, for Kay, the rebellion itself has no suspense, and thus he does not choose to dwell upon it. Once events become inevitable, he largely leaves them to be supplied by the imagination of the reader. I think if Kay had written Game of Thrones, it would probably be just one novel ending with the death of Ned Stark and that moment that the War of the Five Kings engulfed the Seven Kingdoms. The nature of history, its retrospective construction and its many ironies, is one of his chief thematic concerns across all of his works. Rather than building up suspense, Kay chooses instead to encourage reflection, To look back with the tragic clarity of hindsight rather than to look forward with bated breath. There's also another perhaps slightly more unusual theme which dominates his work. Kay shows an abiding fascination throughout all of his novels with the nature and power of art. A lot of Kay's main characters are artists of one kind or another, often poets, in one case a mosaicist, in another a painter, in another a troupe of musicians. Kay is himself a poet, as well as a novelist, and his fantasy works often include poetic quotations, which he he writes himself. Um, For further discussion, you can see my talk on verse and prose in fantasy. The importance of aesthetics, the way in which art helps us to make sense of the world around us, is something that Kay continually highlights. So for me, one of the most moving scenes in all of his novels um, is when the mosaicist learns that due to the adoption of a new iconoclastic doctrine, his great artwork, which he has only just begun on the ceiling of the great sanctuary in Serantium, all work on this is to be halted, he's told, um, and everything that he's done so far is to be taken down and destroyed. It's as if Michelangelo has been told that the Sistine Chapel is to be painted over, and it's a powerful interrogation of the subjection of the aesthetic to the political. And and I think it's Kay's ability to find power in these quieter moments, as well as in the more expected ones, you know, the brash heroic moments or the sweeping romantic moments, um, that gives his work a really unique style and tone. Today, we're very familiar with the idea of historical fantasy. We accept, even demand, a degree of emotional and cultural realism in our novels, um, shades of grey, instead of the perfect nobility or the perfect malevolence of traditional high fantasy writing. Yet Kay's first work after the Fionava trilogy, a novel called Tigana, was actually rejected by his publishers for being too different to his previous trilogy, too far from the traditional fantasy mode. The book ultimately went to auction and it was great success, helping to pioneer the more ambivalent and nuanced kind of fantasy in vogue today. Kay's great success lies in his ability to blend the familiar and well-loved elements of high fantasy with new innovations. His evolution as a writer is also a marker of fantasy's evolution as a genre, coming out from under the shadow of Tolkien and developing into the much more diverse and wide-ranging literary field that we enjoy today. Thank you.